Hello, everyone, and welcome to Picture the Scene podcast with me, Rachel. And me, Andrew. And no, your ears aren't deceiving you. I'm back to host another episode, but this time with a bit of a twist. As one of our listeners, a podcast writer, a lady by the name of Hayes Selby-D, she goes by the name Podcast She Wrote on Facebook and Instagram, has kindly penned today's episode. It's very exciting. It's very exciting. I've got, I've got a touch of deja vu, but it's very exciting. Yeah, Andrew means that because we've actually recorded this episode three times. So, um, you know, well-versed here in the script. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's still a great case and one that I am very much happy to speak about for a third or fourth time. I've lost track by now. Um, but before we immerse ourselves in today's case, I do have a couple of bits to run through with our wonderful, dedicated listeners. So I've been asked to remind you that this is a true crime podcast, so listener caution is advised. And as is always the case, it would be great to hear from you. So please do go check out our socials on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, thanks to Mr. Ogden. And you can also subscribe, leave your feedback, and rate us wherever it is you download our podcast from. Yes, please do. Yeah. So on to you, Andrew. How have you been since we last recorded? Great. Great, yeah. I'm um, plodding along with life. Happy as can be. I feel that's slightly less enthusiastic than the previous times that we've recorded, but all good. <laughs> um, I just wanted to call out how epic it was to have Beth and join us. What do you, what did you think? Oh, yeah, it was great. It was like, you know, when you're on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, yeah. and you see those videos of those dogs that um, <laughs> that are super happy when they see their owner after like two years. Yeah, That's what I felt like. I was a dog when Beth and came on the podcast and I was uh, happy yeah guys I can validate for the record he has come up with a very different response every time we've recorded this so wow and somehow obviously this time managed to only like praise Bethan and not offend me so happy days I'm learning yeah absolutely listen I absolutely loved recording with Bethan I felt like she's a podcast celebrity so like definitely one off the bucket list um it was absolutely amazing um, and would be great to record with Mark and Bethan, but appreciate probably um, that's a little bit like far into the future when we're a little bit more kind of um, established ourselves that we'll get both sets of royalty on our podcast, right? Yeah, one day. Yeah, cool. Okay, I just wanted to say as well how grateful we are to Hayes for writing today's script. Um, and really glad that she actually brought this case forward because it's not one I've heard of and I think you'll all enjoy it. So on that point, are you ready for a bit of true crime, Andrew? I am, and just to add, we have done this several times and each time my appreciation for Hayes' script grows. It is a really great piece of writing, so thank you, Hayes. Much appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Okay, well, if it's safe for you to do so, I'd like all of you to relax, close your eyes, and picture the scene. Today, we're taking you back to 1932, the 29th of October to be precise. It's a Saturday, and the weather seems to be distinctly average. Temperatures reached a high of 12 degrees Celsius, and the lowest recording for the day of a minus two early in the morning. On this distinctly average October day in 1932, Margie Valma Barfield was born. Now, I just want to pause there for a moment, and I'm going to ask you to imagine a serial killer. What do they look like? And what comes into your mind? Are you thinking of Ted Bundy? Perhaps Richard Ramirez? Maybe John Wayne Gacy? Or Dennis Radar? Whatever the image, the term serial killer 
presents in your mind, you're probably not imagining a smiling, five foot three inch, perm haired grandmother wearing large rimmed glasses with Coke bottle lenses. Let me now bring you back to Margie Velma Barfield, the most unlikely of serial killers. Margie Velma Barfield's claims to fame are not only being the first woman in the United States to be executed after the 1976 resumption of capital punishment, but also the first since 1962. She was also the first woman to be executed by lethal injection. And I feel that is super impressive for a 52-year-old grandma, hey? It's impressive. I I also think that maybe that's a set of records that no one wants (laughs) to actually claim or try and achieve, but yeah, it's, it's impressive. I wonder if you would find her in the Guinness Book of Records. Hmm. Anyway, let's take a look at how she got there. As I've already said, Marga was Velma Barfield was born on the 29th of October, 1932, to parents Lily McMillian Bullard and Murphy Olive Bullard. She was their second child, and they would go on to have seven more children. Margie Velma Barfield would go by her middle name, Velma, and that is how she'll be addressed from here on in. The Bullard family lived in relative poverty on Murphy's farm in Wade, North Carolina, with no electricity, no running water, and not even an outhouse. It's pretty grim. Wow, yeah, so no running water, no electricity, no outhouse. No toilet. Hopefully they had a hole in the floor or something. Well, yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, I hadn't even thought about what they're going to do with their waste, but it ain't going to be pleasant, is it? Free compost. Anyway, it was not a happy existence, as you can imagine. Murphy, her father, would often go on drinking binges and physically assault their mother Lily in front of the children. By the age of 11, as well as attending school, Velma was expected to do all the family's laundry and mend their clothes, whilst looking after her younger siblings, of which there were five. So that's actually quite a decent list of chores for an 11-year-old, right? An 11-year-old, and if there's five younger siblings then there has to be so they're going to be quite like quite still really young she's only 11 so she's mm. going to look after them feed them and you know you've got a small child they're not mm. they don't just sit there doing nothing do they 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 need your attention so all at your school and looking after those like fair play i'd be absolutely fuming if i had five kids to look after at 11. um but what 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 i guess i can now ask that we've been through the script so often is what the hell's her older sister doing i don't, I don't think that's anything we've talked about that's, anyway that's a good point that yeah it's like <laughs> whatever she's doing she's doing it right isn't she well yeah yeah anyway so by the age of 12 velma was cooking all the family meals just to add on top of that chore list and which for a family of 11 was hugely time consuming especially on top of the numerous other chores she was expected to do Tired of being poor and being teased about it at school, Velma did manage the time in her busy schedule to become a petty thief, stealing small amounts of money here and there. She was only caught after she stole $80 from a neighbour. That's the equivalent of about £1,000 today, so that's no small amount. That's no small amount to say they lived in a poor area. And I mean, you can forgive, well, obviously no crime is right, and especially theft, but you can forgive stealing to feed your family. It's probably the only thing you can say, okay, we understand why, even if it's not right, but yeah, you know, $80, $1,000, $1,000 in today's money, that's um, a lot of cash. Yeah, you can buy a toilet with it. Mm-hmm. 
Anyway, she was severely punished by her father for this act. In 1945, when Velma was only 13, the family moved to Robson County. Two life-changing events happened this year. Velma would go on to claim that this was the year that her father first raped her. And she would also meet Thomas Burke, whom she'd go on to marry. Velma regularly attended the local Baptist church and was baptized age 16. She could then officially start dating Thomas Burke, as her father would not allow her to date before her 16th birthday, although it was suggested they were unofficially dating before then. The following year, Thomas proposed at the local movie theatre, and Velma eagerly accepted, not through any sense of love or devotion, but more as a means of ex- escaping her tumultuous life at home. I love that word. I do not love that word. That is on my list of tricky words. That's why I love it, hearing you say it over and over. And I will call them tricky words because my daughter is currently learning her tricky words at school. When Velma was 18, the couple were married and living with Thomas's parents, but they soon found their own place in Parkton, where they'd go on to rent a property for the next 11 years. Hopefully it had a toilet. Hopefully. On the 12th of October 1951, Velma gave birth to their first child, a son named Ronald Thomas, known as Ronnie. And two years later, on the 3rd of September 1953, they welcomed their daughter, Kim. During this time, Velma would continue to attend church regularly and even taught some Bible classes. You think that she, um, given the life that she's had, the hard life that she's had, even before you even get onto the horrible abuse that she had physically and and sexually from her father, that so far she's apart from a little petty theft, she's she seems pretty balanced and stable. Absolutely. Unfortunately, it will not go on to be the case. Really? That surprises me. <laughs> and it leads nicely into the next part. In 1955, Velma experienced another life-changing event because all of that stuff that happened before wasn't enough. She was hit by a drunk driver and received severe head injuries. Whilst in hospital, she was diagnosed with depression and began treatment for her mental health as well as her physical injuries. Just as a side note, in 1950s America, people were often treated for anxiety if they presented with mental health issues. But the diagnosis for depression was quite rare, which would be quite concerning for me if it was a rare diagnosis as to what they would do with such a diagnosis and like what treatment they might use. I would don't even want to think about what she was subjected to. Exactly. And well, I'm going to tell you anyway, but she probably had electric shock therapy because that was quite common back then. And what just came to me, actually, so you haven't heard me say this before, <laughs> is... Um, if it was quite rare to diagnose depression, then she was probably quite bad. Mm. Because it must have, obviously, if it's quite rare, it means it has to be really obvious, I imagine, yeah. them to do that. And also, also I'd just say, so. Sorry, she's just also been hit by a car. Exactly, so she'll have head injuries, and that could be causing mood swings or personality disorders as well. Or her depression was further exacerbated when she went on to have a hysterectomy aged just 30 years old. Following this, yeah, absolutely. Following the surgery, Velma admitted she had a problem with her nerves, being constantly tense, nervous, and paranoid. It's a really like nice set of feelings to have, right? Age 30, having been hit by a drunk driver, been abused as a child, and uh, having had a hysterectomy. Poor woman. Yeah. 
Around this time, her husband Thomas joined a civil organization by the name of JCS, established as the United States Junior Chamber of Commerce in January 20, uh, 1920. The JCS, named for their initials JCC, provided opportunities for young men aged 18 to 40 to develop personal and leadership skills through services to others. As it turned out for Thomas, it also provided the opportunity for consuming large amounts of alcohol, which he did frequently. Velma was absolutely horrified as she abhorred alcohol, experiencing firsthand the effect it had on her father's behavior when she was growing up. And also, she was hit by a drunk driver. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, on the face of it, joining a group to serve others seems awesome. But mm. in reality, it sounds like it was it's just a men's a, club. Yeah, drinking excuses to get around and drink and get away from the, the homes. And these clubs still exist. They're not advertised, but they're like men's golf societies, men's private gentlemen's clubs. Like it's crazy. Exactly down with the men, but yeah, no, I, uh, no, I, 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 I've never heard of one myself. Maybe I'm not man enough, but um, but yeah, no, I know they exist, and it's just it's a bit silly, really, isn't it? This was the beginning of the end for the couple. They argued constantly, and Thomas drank more as a result, eventually leading to his becoming a full alcoholic and a violent one at that. When Thomas started beating his wife and threatening their young children, Thelma had him sent to Dorothea Dick's State Hospital to receive help for his excessive drinking. Fair good place. Honor. Yeah, good honour. Fair place. So that was that sounds like, oh, well, that'd be the sensible thing to do, but you're talking 1950s America. Well, 1950s anywhere. Yeah. Even, actually... even like 19 much years later, it, that'd be an unusual thing to do, wouldn't it? And again, I promise our listeners, not something we've talked about, but I'd even hazard a guess that today you'd get some women that are like, I am not sending him to a hospital. He will, you know, it will, it'll be more than my life's worth to like try and address his drinking. So I actually think even more so in 1950s, because in modern day, you get plenty of partners, men, women, you know, however the dynamic works in that household that would not face up to their other half. Well, Thomas discharged himself after three days, furious at his wife for embarrassing him this way. He then lost his job as a result of missing work, and Velman was forced to take on two jobs to ensure the bills were paid. But I'm sorry, if he hadn't gone to hospital, he'd have probably not turned up to work anyway for being an alcoholic. So she just brought forward the inevitable, surely. Yeah, it was probably the tipping point, wasn't it? But yeah. I imagine he wasn't a perfect employee before then, so yeah. Thelma was prescribed tranquilizers at this time, but took three times the recommended dose, and as a result, soon developed an addiction. I wonder if that was because she was prone with her depression to just try and treat something really quick with with pills or, you know, however, in whatever form she took them. It could um, be, yeah. It could be, yeah. You also have to remember that those type of pills, they basically just blank you out, don't they? They remove yeah. you, They remove your feeling so you don't feel happy, but you don't feel sad. They zombify you, so if she's either depressed or hating her life or anything like that, then you're going to take one, start feeling it, and you're going to take as much as possible, aren't you? Yeah. She was actually hospitalised several times for overdosing on prescription medication. On the 4th of April, 1969, Velma left the family home with their two children, telling Thomas she was leaving him. However, she did decide to return later, only to find that their house had burnt down. Thomas Burke was dead. It's unfortunate the house had burned down, and obviously it's unfortunate someone's lost their life, but as a total side effect, it probably made Velma's life a little bit easier. 
Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, he died at age just 36 from smoke inhalation and it was just a rental property as well, if you recall. So, you know, there would have been no benefit to his death, like in terms of insurance or anything like that. Um, a real shame for her because, yeah, she wouldn't have had a home now. Oh, I didn't um, think about that, yeah. No home. It's not a good thing. But he had apparently passed out drunk whilst holding a lit cigarette. And this was noted as the official cause of the fire. Thelma did not mourn for long, if at all, and just a year later married Jennings Barfield, the brother of one of her colleagues. Jennings had multiple health issues, including emphysema and diabetes, and Velma therefore became his primary caregiver while still abusing prescription drugs. And probably while still working one or two jobs as well. Maybe, maybe. Jennings Barfield died just a few months later on the 22nd of March, 1971, aged just 54. The official cause of death? Heart failure. Drug taking continued and Velma was fired from her job at the textile factory. So there you go. Yeah. With no income and all her money being spent on feeding her addiction, mortgage repayments on Jennings' property were missed and Velma found herself homeless once again. Velma, Ronnie and Kim moved back in with her parents in December 1971. Just a short time later, in March 72, her dad Murphy died of lung cancer. She's really not having a great time here, like, Obviously, death is kind of following her around. It's My- following, yeah, it's unlucky, but I mean, I don't wish death on anyone. Um, but I imagine she probably wasn't that upset that her father died. No, and you know, he whilst he might have been like old and frail, and therefore, you know, all the kids flew in the nest, not as much stress on him, and therefore, he wasn't hurting his wife anymore. It's still like there would have been a sense of relief, wouldn't there? That like your mum's not in pain anymore because your dad's gone. Yeah, and also you got to think that when people hold that type of power, that fear over other people, even when that perceived fear should be gone, like say when kids grow up and they've been victim of either sexual or physical abuse, they still have that fear. When if you were like outside looking on, you'd say, oh, logically, they shouldn't have it because they're not in a position, but obviously it's ingrained, isn't it? And you don't, you might... That person might be like he might be a frail old man, but to them he would still be that position, that that person of hatred, that person who yeah. who, who gave fear, even though he might be a frail old man. They, mm. they they probably wouldn't see him like that. They'd see him as someone still to be afraid of. Yeah, absolutely. That would never go, would it? No. Despite living at home, Velma was still in need of financial support and took to forging checks in her mother Lily's name. After a while, concerned that the fraud might be discovered. Velma purchased a bottle of poison and started administering it to Lily's food. That's quite an escalation. It's quite an escalation. And one thing I've just realised what you've just said there, her family wasn't rich. I mean, we know that from the very beginning. Lots of children, like, not very good living conditions. So the mum obviously didn't have lots of money anyway to force shakes. And also on suspicion that she might get caught. So she hadn't actually been caught or accused of anything. She just thought, I better kill her before I get found out. Yeah, and again, something that I'd not thought about previously, but what if it's paranoia? What if the drugs are setting off a tone of paranoia? So she's like, must get rid of the evidence. I know, I'll kill my mum. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's a strange one. So Lily began complaining of vomiting, cramping and diarrhoea. And Velma finally agreed to call the doctor to write a prescription. Lily's condition worsened and the doctor was called for a follow-up. This time, Lily was admitted to Fayetteville Hospital, North Carolina, but was pronounced dead 
on the 30th of December, 1974, aged just 64. The cause of death, heart failure. Whilst heart it seemed failure. that Velma... I'm going to cut you off again there. Rude Andy. Heart failure again. Yeah, it, we're building the picture. We are, yes. Whilst it seemed Velma had got away with poisoning her mother, she had not got away with the fraud. It wasn't long until the checks were discovered. Following the death of her mother, Velma had moved in with her daughter, Kim, and son-in-law. And it was here that police paid her a visit and insisted she pay back the money she owed. Velma dealt with it the way she dealt with everything. She turned to drugs, this time taking an overdose of prescription drugs and was admitted to hospital. Crazy. And, and like, I'm obviously, I, I have seen Catch Me If You Can several times, but I'm not an expert on 1970s check fraud. But, um, but all she surely had to say to him was, I don't know what you're talking about. My mum definitely cashed those checks. Their mum's dead. So like, they can't say, no, we know it wasn't because all she can say is, well, have you asked my mum? But obviously, when you're in the middle of addiction and, and things like that, you don't exactly think straight, do you? But yeah. Yeah, good shout. I mean, she might have cashed them after her mum died. Yeah, or, or, or maybe then the people recognised it was her. Yeah, I should forgive me. I'm obviously talking nonsense no no it's always good to highlight because there'll be a listener out there that's gone down the route of oh yeah why wasn't that why didn't she deny so obviously her overdose was an admission of guilt right so when Velma came around she was informed by the police that she'd be arrested as soon as she was discharged despite overdosing again in an attempt to avoid jail Velma eventually pled guilty in court and received a six-month sentence at the Correctional Center for Women in Raleigh, North Carolina. Velma was released only four months later due to her good behavior. That's uh, not a bad sentence, really, is it? It's not, but it definitely wouldn't have addressed her addiction that they probably would have realized was quite severe now. She's overdosed several times. Yes, severe, and also actually from prescription tablets. It's one of the few drugs that you can die from, from going cold turkey. I know you see, like, you depict images in films of, like, say, train spotting where they go cold turkey on heroin and whatnot. It's horrible what you can get through it most of the time. But prescription tablets, um, yeah, it's um, it's one of the few things where if you just go cold turkey like that, then, then you can die. And I'm imagining... In a prison system, they're not going to bother, like you said, like weaning them off or getting them into a program. They're just going to put her in a cell and let her sweat it out. You know, on that point, it's a really valid point around drugs because my head has always gone to, you know, all drugs are bad and like, and, and kind of class A drugs are the ones that kill and prescription drugs are the ones that, you know, you get addicted to quite easily, but they just medicate and then become an addiction. But I was watching um, a documentary recently called Death on the Beach. Um, and uh, there was a father there who'd sought independent advice from a um, pathologist on, on his daughter's autopsy because they had purported that she'd overdosed on uh, tramadol. And um, what he'd suggested is if, if she'd have taken as much as the autopsy had confirmed, that she would have simply just stopped breathing because her brain would not have been signaling to her body to take an in-breath and an out-breath and an in-breath and an out-breath. And like, I had no idea that prescription drugs were lethal in the respect that, you know, take too many, especially with alcohol. And that 
that could so easily happen. Um, so you're absolutely right. Um, you know, you, you think that it's the class A's that kill and that's because of the, you know, what whatever you see in the news that week. Um, but but no, all drugs bad and you know especially prescribed ones because if anything probably the person taking them feels that they're quite innocent maybe yeah and they can they're getting them from most of the time to begin with from the doctor anyway aren't they as well so who should be trusted so Velma's good behavior did not last once back living with the daughter Kim Velma forged a check in the name of her son-in-law in order to buy more prescription drugs. Kim ended up contacting the pharmacist, begging him not to reissue any more drugs to her mother. Just imagine having to do that, like absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, that conversation. You're, you're not only begging the pharmacist not to prescribe your mum with drugs, which is just a, a line you never want to cross as a kid trying to protect your mum in that way. But then also you don't want your husband to find out how awful your mum is and has done something, you know, behind your husband's back that could bring your like own integrity into question just feels really awful on all sides when I think about that and reflect on that. And also it goes to show it reflects on Velma's personality that she'd been doing these horrible things, she'd been cashing checks, but her daughter still loves her enough to care. Mm, Yeah, it showed that she wasn't just like a a horrible person who everyone hated. In 1976, realising her source of income and drugs had both run dry, Velma took a job as a living carer for $75 a week for the 93-year-old Montgomery Edwards and his 83-year-old wife, Dolly. They clearly didn't do their background checks on Velma, did they? Clearly not. I do love these names that you're throwing out. I know. All I reckon, I reckon there'll be plenty of kids called Dolly and Montgomery and Velma in this day and age. Yeah, during this, definitely. Yes. During this time, Velma met and befriended Dolly's nephew, Roland Stuart Taylor, known as Stuart, and they soon started dating. Montgomery Edwards died on the 29th of January, 1977, aged 95. That's a decent age to live to, isn't it? I think so. Imagine, like, 1977... Let me try to work my maths out here. That's so he was born in eighteen eighty two. So he he um he lived through the turn of the century, the Titanic, First World War, Second World War, like Vietnam. Sixties. Wow. I, that is some fast math you just did. Well done. Yeah, I know. That's my skills. That's my life skills. Yeah. Your mental capacity has been taken up for the day. Yes. After the death of her husband, Dolly Edwards became overly critical of Velma and the manner in which she was being cared for. Velma, tired of being treated poorly, went shopping for poison once more. Like she had done with Mother Lily, Velma began to administer small amounts of poison to Dolly's food, gradually increasing the amount until Dolly Edwards died in hospital on the 1st of March, 1977. There you go. And I was thinking just now when you said that, because obviously... um... I can no right spoilers. I kind of knew what he was about to say, but um, it's like fraud. Like I'm thinking about her check fraud, where people you read about all the time, like like person who works for the council show ninety grand to to gamble away or something like that. They they start off really small, mm-hmm. and then because they get away with it, they do it again and again, and it feels like this is what's happening with her. She's keeps getting away with it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think like what you're describing is the you know the period of escalation and she's um yeah escalated pretty quick and getting quite confident probably too confident but we'll go on to that 
Yeah. Pleased to be rid of Krabby Dolly, but without a regular income, Velma found another live-in care. This time for John Henry Lee, aged 80, and his wife, Record Lee, aged 76, who had a broken leg. Oh, wow, that's an awesome name. Yeah, and actually, uh, her name was Record, and she had a broken leg, so technically she was a broken record. That's the best thing about this episode. That's an that's like my hat's off to you, Rachel. I, I, I respect you forever for telling that joke. Velma decided her weekly wage was simply not enough to live on to fund her continued drug habit. So she forged one of John Henry Lee's checks for $50 and to make absolutely sure he would not find out about the forgery, off she went shopping again. And what did she go shopping for? I felt for her at the start. Oh, poison. Come on. Of course. Of course. I did feel quite sorry for her at the start, but like... Yeah, no, there's no uh, words now. So you got to feel sorry for her because, like, she she forges checks and then ends up poisoning people. Like Leonardo DiCaprio, he forged checks and became a pilot. Like, where's the comparison? They, they'd have made a great couple. Very powerful. John Henry Lee was admitted to hospital with stomach and chest pains, along with vomiting and diarrhea, and died on the 4th of June, 1977. Velma remained employed by the widowed Record Lee for a few more months, but left in October that year to move in with Stuart Taylor, Dolly's nephew, whom she was still dating, and began a new job as a nurse's aide. This relationship had started well, and presumably Velma was a pillar of support to Stuart after the death of his beloved aunt Dolly. However, once the couple had moved in together, Stuart came across a letter in Velma's belongings, which would cause him to become her next victim. The letter in question was from when Velma was in prison for fraud. Stuart was furious as she had not disclosed this fact to him. I don't know what you feel about this, but I'm a bit annoyed that he's gone through her possessions. I am. Um, it depends what extent. If he went searching, then yes. But if he came across it, then potentially no. It just right, depends. You just like been going through the mail it sounds like he was she was supportive of, of him because obviously of his aunt dying and obviously he doesn't know that she killed his aunt but so it would probably quite happy and there's obviously though i'm thinking she's she's in active addiction maybe he was looking for something to try and help or see what was happening could be so rather in rather than try and convince Stuart that velma had turned over a new leaf instead velma stole one of Stuart's checks and forged it. Realising now that he was very suspicious of her behaviour and watching her closely, Velma had made up her mind. Stuart must die if she was to continue with her wicked ways. And you guessed it, off she went shopping for poison once more. Velma added a small amount of poison to Stuart's beer and food over time until one day when the couple were attending a gospel meeting, Stuart was taken very seriously ill and Velma took him home. After three days of agonizing stomach and chest pains, vomiting and diarrhea, Velma eventually called the doctor for Stuart and he was taken to hospital in Lumberton, North Carolina. Roland Stuart Taylor died on 3rd of February 1978, aged 56. Incredibly, when police asked for permission from Velma to autopsy his body, she readily agreed. And I think this is a bit strange that she's agreed to um, permit his autopsy, but I also wonder whether it was a cry for help because... Maybe she got involved in like this spiral of like, I need to kill, I need to forge checks, my addiction. Maybe she had like a, a moment of clarity where she was like, shit, yes, exhume his body or, or do the autopsy before you bury him and I'll get caught and then it can stop. It could be, yes. Stuart's autopsy report revealed the cause of death to be arsenic poisoning and Velma was immediately arrested and taken to Robson County Sheriff's Department for questioning. Realising she had finally been caught, 
Velma attempted suicide by overdosing on prescription medication once again. But her son, Ronnie, intervened this time, and she was sent to Dorothea State, sorry, Dorothea Dick State Hospital, ironically, where she had sent her first husband several years before for a psychiatric evaluation. After just five weeks, it was determined that Velma had the mental capacity to stand trial and she was released. So I don't really think it would have been a thorough review, would it? No. Not what we are accustomed to in this day and age. No, probably not. Velma's trial began in November 1978 in Elizabethtown, North Carolina, where she was charged with first-degree murder in the death of Stuart Taylor. At trial, she was found guilty and sentenced to death, despite admitting to also killing Lily, her mother, Dolly Edwards and John Henry Lane. Margie was only sentenced for the murder of Taylor. Curiously, she always denied killing Jennings Barfield, despite his corpse being re-dug up for an autopsy where arsenic was found present. It is also widely speculated that Velma was responsible for the house fire that killed her first husband. Remember? Wow, yeah. No evidence was found, though, and as she'd not confessed to that, it was not taken any further. Velma was taken to the Correctional Centre for Women in Rally and placed on death row. She received several stays of execution with the date of her death continuously being put back. During her incarceration, Velma became a mentor and mother figure to the younger women in jail and was affectionately known as Mama Margie. So it seems like to me that she just needed to break that cycle of the drug addiction, spending a decent amount of time in jail, and look at what she's turned her life around to. Yeah, I, I hope she wasn't working in the kitchen. <laughs> Good point. Appeals were launched against her sentence, with Velma's attorney arguing for not guilty by reason of insanity. But this was rejected, and the death penalty remained. Despite confessing to killing four innocent people, and possible guilt, possibly guilty of killing a further two, Velma had many supporters who opposed the death sentence and pled with the governor for clemency. But this was also sadly denied. And I say sadly because I actually don't believe in the death penalty. So I just I just can't believe that we should punish eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's it's just not right. No, I, I agree also. And it really troubles my soul if I'm being a little bit deep when you just see so many people online yeah. like, buying for blood and just, it's just, it's, it, it saddens me that I don't think society's changed in as much as there's always been people like that. It just seems to be a lot more people like that nowadays. Well, I'd be interested in, to hear your thoughts on this. Like Velma reached out to Reverend Billy Graham, the prominent evangelical Christian figure and ordained Southern Baptist minister who had been visiting her in jail in an attempt to use his influence to save her from the death penalty. But his response to me, his response to me was quite surprising. Um, quoted as saying, Velma, in a way, I envy you because you're going to get to heaven before I do. I just feel that's a complete like, cop out. Like if he's a, you know, I get it. He's an extreme Christian, but like imagine saying that to somebody who's pleading for their life with you and their response is, oh, but you're going to get to meet Jesus before I do. So, you know, how lucky are you? He has to stay in character, though, because um, if you look into Billy Graham, I'm not going to comment on him because obviously I'm not going to get into that whole debate, but he has a certain character and personality that he needs to continually portray. And if you think about that and look into that, investigate it, then you see that actually fits in with him. I agree with you, it's odd and it he seems wrong, but it, it fits into him perfectly. So on the 22nd of October, 1984, Velma's children, Ronnie and Kim, brought their own children to jail to say farewell to their beloved grandmother for one last time. Velma chose lethal injection over the gas chamber and the date for execution was set. Imagine having to choose the way that you die. No, I can't. 
that's why I just don't believe in the death penalty. I just think, well, it's not, it's not why. It's one of the reasons why. I just, yeah, if you're going to punish me and put me on death row, you know, in, in, in a way, you should also be in charge of how I die, not leaving me to mull over that question as well. Yeah. Thelma's final action was to write letters to the families of all of her victims asking for forgiveness. She'd asked a member of the local clergy, Reverend Hoyle, who had been visiting her regularly, to promise he would deliver the letters when she had gone. To which he agreed. After her final meal of a bag of cheese doodles and a Coke, and I have no idea what cheese doodles are, um, but I imagine some form of like what's it's maybe. <laughs> Margie Velma Barfield was executed by lethal injection at the central prison in Raleigh, North Carolina, pronounced dead at 2:15 a.m. on November 2nd, 1984. She was just 56 years old. Her final words were an apology for all the hurt I have caused. Reverend Hoyle tried to keep his promise to deliver Velma's letters, but every single one was rejected by family members. Velma is the very epitome of a paradoxical character. She stole from her family, cold-heartedly removed everyone in her life that would get in her way of feeding her addiction to tranquilizers, antidepressants, narcotics, sleeping pills, and stimulants. She was stone-faced in court, showing little or no emotion. But this would appear to be such a stark contrast to the description given by Mr. Richard Burr, the Southern Prisoner's Office Defence Committee, who recalled later. After meeting Velma, I thought that if she committed those crimes, they were committed under circumstances in which her mental and emotional states were seriously altered from the way they had been when we were together. The person I saw was kind, sensitive and loving. There was no hidden agenda with Velma. Whether you were with her, Whenever you were with her, she was who she was. And from what I understand, that's how she lived her life in prison. So from the very beginning, I believe that when she committed those crimes, it was not the Velma Barfield, mentally or emotionally, that I was seeing and getting to know. Which just leaves us to mull over Velma Barfield. A cold-blooded killer or a misunderstood, beaten down, abused woman with undiagnosed mental health conditions and a crippling addiction. What do you think? I, I, I've been swinging on this over the last few days. Yes or no, I really don't know. Um, I think it's a bit about, I think it's people always have choices. So therefore, nothing's ever justified when it comes to killing someone. But yeah, it's just like, you've got a feel for the poor when the life that she had, but it doesn't excuse what she did. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And uh, I would absolutely say the latter. I feel like definitely a woman that's been absolutely dragged through all sorts of circumstances. It's been so unfortunate, but there will be plenty of women and men, boys and girls out there today that are also put in those situations and don't turn to, you know, killing. So doesn't, you know, I'm also undecided on like, you know, ultimately how sorry I feel for her. But I just wanted to kind of end on a light note, if I can, um, to say great script, Hazel, and thanks once again for penning it for us. I do hope I did it justice, um, but really enjoyed hearing about the case, and I hope our listeners did too. Yeah, I second that one. Great script. Thanks, Hazel. That's Hazel from Podcast She Wrote, and it's a story I didn't know beforehand, so I always like hearing um, about true crime that I don't already know. So, yeah, this is great. Thank you, Hazel. And so for one last time today, I'd like all of you to relax, close your eyes and picture the scene. You're visiting your grandma and she's made you all something really special for dinner. But do you know what's in it? Let's hope it's not poison. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everyone. Mm-hmm.